Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rosart Show, live every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern. Sorry, a little notification popped up. I've got my new uh, ring light going on. We're gonna see if that works well or not. Um, if you get in here, just drop a question down below in the portion of the chat. Um, it's gonna be completely uh, open today where we talk about anything related to you know, buying a property, related to investing in real estate, related to lending in whatever. You could be lending to businesses, you could be lending to you know, people, brands, but mostly we're talking about lending to real estate. It's my favorite way to do private lending. Um, it's my favorite way to do private borrowing as well. It's one of the safest ways that I think an investor can, without knowing someone really, really well, put capital out there and have it you know, be relatively safe. And real estate is, a, especially in a developed nation like you know, Canada, um, it's fairly safe. So we'll talk about that today. Some topics that I think might come up today would be like, how do you get financing, you know, post, you know, retirement? What are some ways people are still getting financing for deals? How much should you be paying for your financing? What are some of the hidden costs related to financing, um, you know, purchasing a property or a business? And then, so I think we'll look at it from the two sides. From And when I talk about this from the borrower's perspective, a lender could be listening and be learning too, right? So it can help both sides of the coin and um, yeah. Um, hey Rob, how you doing? Thanks for the comment uh, below. Good to see you on. So in the last week, I've been uh, happy American Thanksgiving Eve, Mike. <laughs> Thanks, William. Uh, I'm Canadian over here, so we don't have, um, our Thanksgiving was, geez, like over a month ago. So uh, it's, it's wild to think that you guys are having Thanksgiving now when, when we already had Thanksgiving. But uh, yeah, um, over here, I've just been working away on selling a few more properties. In the last week, we had a property that uh, we listed at to 599, sold for 712,500. AJ was a rock star, I was super proud of him for, for crushing that. Uh, he was the listing agent on that. He's my partner on Investor's Choice Realty. So I was super, super enthused about that happening. London market, we're talking about you know the real estate prices, everything's crazy, of course. Um, we're seeing multiple offers on everything. Garbage properties that are like, you know, semis. I've seen semis go for like between four and $500,000. Um, Semi-detached houses, right? I'm seeing like trash properties that pop up on MLS between four and 600,000 and just, just crazy. And even like the average houses, some basic type houses I'm seeing going to 600s and 700s. Just wild what we're seeing in London right now. Um, hard to get cash flow, but that said, I'm still finding things on MLS. I picked one up in the last two weeks on MLS. It was an amazing, phenomenal deal. So it's weird, like I snap it up on MLS. I think it was underpriced by about 150,000 on the MLS. And so there's still deals out there. You just got nowhere to look and you gotta act quick. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's what's been up in my world. I've been selling some properties off, getting more liquid. You guys know I'm focusing on, in the new year, I'm gonna start doing, on this channel, I'm gonna start talking about, date, um, not really day trading, but like more options trading, more uh, investor-focused public investing strategy uh, type of uh, conversation, finance-type conversation. So I'm gonna pivot a little bit. Not that I'm not gonna still do real estate deals, because I am, I plan to do a ton of that stuff still, but. I don't want to be an active partner and so because I'm not doing it and I've talked enough on this channel about all the strategies when it comes to you know investing in real estate 
one time or another, I've mentioned every type of real estate investing strategy. So some of the content I haven't had a chance to cover is more of my stock trading interests. So I'm going to dive into that and bring you guys along for the journey and share some of the things that I'm up to and some of the things that I'm doing. So that'll be fun. Hey, Alex. Good to see you on. Greetings, Mr. Rosehart. Thanks, D-How-To. Appreciate the comment. Uh, and then Darren said, hey, Mike, any suggestions on prepping a refinance application for an A-lender back to the most amount of money? Thanks and appreciate the insight. Um, so A-lender, uh, sending an application to an A-lender for refinance. So how do you get the most? I guess it kind of depends on which A-lender you've selected. But some general tips when you're going in for, for refinance, you've got to justify to the lender why you're going for this refinance. So if you've already got a mortgage with them, you know, four or five months ago, why are you coming back for refinance so soon? So it depends on the length of time, I guess, too. Um, if it's a, a burr and you've just finished a huge renovation, it's justifying that value you've brought to the table um, and bring that to the, the appraisal, too. The biggest thing through a refinance is going to be your appraisal, right? Can you get the appraiser to, to say, hey, you bought this place six months ago, it's worth $150,000 more because you put X and Y money into it or whatever, right? So it's just justifying um, that value increase, right? And I think that that's a big piece of the refinance. The other piece is obviously ratios. Maybe it made sense when you bought this property and you bought it for say $300,000 and now you're going back up $500,000. Do your ratios still make sense? Is the rent to price still in line at this new value? Can your debt service ratios um, hold this new refinance value? That's a big piece of it, right? With the A-lenders, they're most concerned about, you know, your, your credit score, obviously you're gonna make sure you maintain your credit score. If you're going back for a refinance, you probably already have, you know, A-lender um, type credit score because you already got the A-lender. I'm assuming you had an A-lender mortgage first off and you're refinancing again with A-lender. But if you had a private mortgage and you're refinancing with an A-lender, that's a different story. Um, yeah, so it, it really, I think the biggest thing is, is getting behind that, that appraisal. When you go to present your case, it's gonna be the same things that you presented before. Um, you're gonna to have to show you know, proof of rent. If you've just rented the place out now and you're going for the refinance, show that you got the rent. If it's a duplex, upper and lower, show those leases, show the rents coming in on your bank account. Um, you know, justify your other rental properties. What are they doing? What's the whole picture look like? Are they cash flow positive? Uh, how do your ratios look at the end of the day? That's what they're looking for. Um, that, basically, I wish I could give you more targeted advice. Um, hmm. When you go back to the refinance, they don't care about your down payments. That's not really an important piece either. Um, yeah, basically he's trying to pull out some of the capital, right? Some considerations might be, uh, is it worth it for the lender to take a look at it? Let's say you wanted to pull out only 50 grand um, from this refinance. It might not be worth it. The lender might not want to break the mortgage and you know put you through into a new mortgage product if the amount isn't large enough for them to be worth their, their business, right? Worth their time. That could be something. Uh, if you're switching a lenders switching from one lender to another and you refinance consider the breakout fees they could be significant uh, in which case it might not be worth it you might look at it and say hey the breakout fee is twenty thousand dollars to get out of this fixed five-year mortgage from x lender uh, maybe it makes more sense maybe it's cheaper to put a second mortgage on there at ten percent for you know a year until that term runs out and then you can refinance it all together in one foul swoop that can make more sense sometimes those second mortgage type products make more sense than breaking out of a first and refinancing another first with a lender. It just depends on the situation. The more you've been through it, the more you'll find out that uh, each situation is so, so different. It's hard to give generic advice. Um, 
But yeah, I guess the biggest thing you can do is just articulate, articulate your, your case, your business case and say, hey, here's who I am, here's what I'm doing, here's what you wanna to lend to me and get behind me, right? And hopefully the, the person you're going through, the channel that you're going through for that A-lender mortgage can articulate that for you. Hey Alex, not too much, how about you? I'm doing well. Uh, Alex Ravenku says, do you think the interest rates will be in the 2% in two years? Bank of Canada did mention 0.25 prime rate for three years. So I hope it's still low by the time I can buy. Alex, I think in the near to midterm, so call it like the next year for sure, the Bank of Canada has no business raising interest rates. The economy is not doing well. We're going into another sort of lockdown, um, similar to what we had before, especially in the major metropolitan areas. And that has, you know, that has consequences, right? On small businesses, it's gonna crush people. Um, it's, it's almost like an economic reset in a lot of ways for some of the middle class that are struggling, like the small business owners and the, you know, people who are working are now laid off or whatever because of this COVID lockdown again, right? So there's gonna be, ramifications of that for another year, two years, three years, four years, I think, to be honest. And despite the stock market roaring to all new highs, most of that isn't real, right? We're looking at the price of the Dow in, uh, in USD or in Canadian dollars, and they're printing so much money that the value of the dollar is going down. The absolute worst thing you can do right now is be in cash, um, in my opinion. Like you're, the value, over the last six to, six to 10 months, if you're just sitting in cash, the value of your cash has dropped at least 10%. So get your cash invested, have it grow something, right? So that it's not just sitting there rowing to inflation. Um, but do I think, I guess the short answer to your question is, I don't think the rates are coming up anytime soon. Our economy can't handle it right now. Um, also, the government would never raise rates during a crisis like this because it would put a strain on business owners that's already they're already feeling it from every other angle. They couldn't hit them on their loans too, right? They want people to borrow. They want to stimulate the economy. Money's almost free right now because we're in such financial turmoil. It's the only thing injecting, you know, some strength into the economy. So yeah, I don't see it happening anytime soon. Um, that said, we could recover and, and rates could float back up. I mean, as soon as the economy recovers, as soon as we're over this, you know, the vaccines and, you know, various levels of, um, effectiveness trials and it's coming to market soon, right? So once that's a thing and you know the COVID lockdown stuff is all done, uh, the economy might just bounce back pretty quick. It might take only a year for us to bounce back to new levels, right? And that's the beautiful thing is that we can recover pretty quick from this. So I think that um, with the low interest rates, we'd be poised to have a recovery. And uh, I do think that it's one of, those, one of those things where right now you should take advantage of the low interest rate. You should be levering up, you should be borrowing debt at, I'm seeing people borrow, my, my personal house, I have a mortgage of 1.345, five-year variable. 1.34, that's the interest rate I pay on my, on my house. Um, so like, it's ridiculous how low interest rates are right now. I'm hearing stories from people of like 1.5 year, five-year fixeds here in Canada on 25-year amortizations. Just wild, wild cheap money, like almost free. And so I recommend taking advantage of that free money and putting it to work because as they print more money and they force the interest rates down, they basically increase the money supply, I think there's gonna be going through almost a stagflation, right? Where the economy's not doing very well, but things are all inflating in value, similar to what we saw in the 70s with some of the oil crisis. I think that's a possibility. 
And uh, so being in, in things, asset classes like real estate, super safe, right? Because they float with inflation, right? Uh, being in like cryptocurrencies, again, that's why cryptocurrencies are blowing up right now. Gold, um, you know, I don't really like gold and silver. I don't really like crypto as an investment because it doesn't cash flow. It doesn't provide you any return. You're only, it's like the greater fool um, investing strategy. The only way to make any money is to sell it to someone else for more than you bought it for. And so there's no actual, there's no business there. You're just trying to dupe someone else into buying your Bitcoin or your gold for more than you bought it for, right? It is a store of value that's not, I mean, they can't, they can't uh, play with the money supply with Bitcoin like they can with currency, right? So anyway, with business owners being in such trouble right now, the cost of food's going up like crazy. The cost of housing's going up like crazy with low interest rates. The cost, businesses are all doing, you know, it's all boosting businesses that are, I guess, online or, you know, that will survive well through COVID, so... Anyway, I think that once things calm down, we could see we could see an inching up of interest rates. But if they were to flow interest rates more than a quarter point or even half a percentage, like back even towards some of the spring numbers, what we would see is you know the pre-COVID numbers. What we would see is the housing market that's up now twenty five percent in a lot of areas in Canada right now. Real estate's up twenty five percent since before COVID started. That's unreal. Like for. $500,000 properties to now be worth like 700,000. That's just what we see now. Um, a correction, I don't even think we get, like once enough people have bought houses and refinanced their houses and people get used to this price and they're stuck to it, right? it's a stickiness in real estate. I don't think we're gonna see a pullback uh, of that amount. It's just not gonna happen. You're never gonna pull back to pre-COVID uh, unless we had like major interest rate rises and the government won't let it happen. It's too hard on the, on the economy. It wipes out too many people. And so the banks would step in and say, hey, like, let's not let this, let this happen, right? Um, it's too hard on the economy. That's my thoughts anyway. Next one. There are a lot of old houses here built in 1910s. I can easily meet the 1% rule. Is it ever worth spending a significant amount of money renovating a house that is old? Thoughts on houses in general. Uh, Roy, good question. I think that it depends, right, on what has been done in the house. As an example, I've seen houses built in 1900 that are nicer than houses built in 1990 that have been renovated inside and are beautiful, right? Um, so it's hard to say the year built doesn't really, uh, I think the year built doesn't really justify the condition of the house. The question is, when was it last renovated, right? And if 1970, someone rebuilt the house uh, inside and out, right, then it could be just as good as a house built in 1970, right? Um, and some of the stuff you see in the old days, there's some solid, I've seen some solid properties built with like, you know, giant timbers in the basement to carry across loads and just quality, some of the quality and some of the product, like some of the hardwood floors and things you see, better quality than what they're installing today. So there is something to be said about the older houses. And if you go old enough, sometimes they're, they're, they predate asbestos and things like that. Like the asbestos pipe wrap that they started using in like a lot, they used it a lot in the 50s and 60s. Sometimes you avoid that stuff in the super old houses or it's been already, already remediated. Um, so just things to look out for, of course, like knob and tube, uh, that kind of stuff like lead paint, asbestos, all that scary stuff, uh, formaldehyde and your insulation and stuff. Just looking out for all those things that could have happened over the years, uh, vermiculite you know, type uh, asbestos insulation in the attics, that kind of stuff happened. Let's say you bought a property in 1910 and 50 years ago, someone put insulation in it, right? At the wrong time in the 60s. So with old houses, there is a chance that stuff will happen. Get a good home inspector or learn how to inspect yourself and you won't have those problems, right? That said, just because it's an old property doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad one. So 
um, just be careful. There could be a lot more repair costs. In general, you should expect that, well, it it's so hard, right? Because you got new 1910 buildings that have brand new roofs on them that have better roofs than a property built in 1995 because the roof would be newer, right? So it just depends on what is the age of the roof? What is the age of the plumbing? The electrical systems, the mechanical systems, you know, look at the structure of the building. Look at the windows. It's got its original old windows, budget 20, 30,000 for new windows. If that's a thing that's important to you. I have an old property that I'm thinking about in my portfolio and it has old windows. We put a second aluminum window on, so it's got like storms on it and it's decently efficient. It's not worth 30 grand replaceable windows. The tenant's happy there with the windows that exist. They don't leak a ton. We've caulked them all nicely. They're nice historic windows. Leave them. It's okay. Sometimes you can leave the old windows and it's just fine. If a window breaks, you repair it, right? And so there's something to be said about like the incremental value of upgrading those windows. It, on, on say $30,000 to do the windows, it might take me 60 years to get that back in heating costs. So it's not worth it um, to do it. And so in some cases it might not be worth it. You run your numbers. And if you're looking at new builds versus old buildings, you might find that the cash flow after you factor in increased repairs and maintenance and all the kind of stuff that's gonna go along with an older building, uh, you might find that the cash flow is worthwhile. And in some cases it is for me. I've bought a lot of older buildings and it's made sense. Um, yeah, so it's very situational. Um, yeah, I think old houses in general can be gold mines if you find the right ones. They can also be money pits. So just do your research, do your due diligence. William says, Mike, it seems like if I go FI, rents would make up 60% of my income and stock gains 20%. So I need to occasionally sell a property to get the last 20%. I was wondering if you ever had something similar. Um, I, yeah, when I, well, not similar to that in that when I retired, yeah, very similar actually. When I retired, I think my rental income was going to support, I had enough rental income to support my entire lifestyle two times over. So I was in a position of being very conservative with rental income, but then I factored in there's rental appreciation. So I figured the properties would appreciate. And this is, I retired in early 2017, but late 2016, I was running my numbers just before I retired thinking, you know, I could live on the rental income. If things got tight, I had a little bit of vacancy, I'd still be okay. I ran some sensitivity analysis and was like, hey, if market appreciates 1% a year, I'll get the appreciation, that'll be bonus. I had a little bit of a stock portfolio, not much. I was mostly in real estate when I retired, but I thought with my little stock portfolio, if I could grow it, you know, 8% a year, there would be like my bonus there if I ever wanted to go on like some trips or something or increase my standard of living. Um, and then of course I got bored and the type of person that I am, I just, I jumped out and I, I grew like crazy, right? And I bought a lot of properties and I levered up a ton. And I'm thankful I did because uh, now I'm lux fire, right? So what I, what I found when I talked to most early retirees is their net worth does that, well, most type A early retirees, and by the way, most type, most early retirees that I've met in their 20s and 30s retiring, even early 40s, they happen to be highly ambitious people to begin with. That's how they got to that position. They, that's they able to earn enough and save enough to get to the point of early retirement. So that type of person, if you've made it there in your 20s or 30s or 40s, you're probably already a type A, very, maybe not a type A, but a very um, driven individual. And so what I find is that almost all of those individuals tend to succeed extremely well in retirement with that spare time on their hands. They tend to take on businesses or entrepreneurial activities that grow their net worth faster than their day job did. Because they just got, they reclaimed 40 hours a week to do whatever they love. And what you love tends to make you more money than what you don't love, right? In most people's job, they don't love, right? More than three quarters of people hate their job um, or are at least dissatisfied according to a Gallup study. So if you're the one quarter or the 23% that are, I think it's 20, 2.8% that are blessed and actually don't hate their job. Like that's amazing. Uh, at some point you will. 
statistically speaking, you'll have a boss you don't like, you'll have a change in management, you'll have to shift jobs, whatever. So you should still prepare for early retirement or a version of financial independence where you can work at the job you want. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, what I've found is that the net worths of the individuals who retire within five years is almost always doubled. Um, that, maybe that's because a lot of the people that I talk to are in real estate and the real estate market has done extremely well or they're in, in business. And most of the people I know that are FI with interest in different businesses have done extremely well. Look at the stock market in the last 20 years even. It's been crazy. So it's been a good ride for everyone. Who knows what the future is gonna hold? I think if they keep printing money the way that they have, um, there'll be so much growth that it'll just be, just be wild. Um, but William, I think you don't need to worry. I think you can do a sensitivity analysis and say, okay, um, if I have a vacant unit or two, am I okay? If this happens, am I okay? Uh, did you factor in you know, mortgage pay down? Did you factor in more, uh, rent, real estate appreciation? Remember, if you're levered up and your property appreciates 3%, your down payment equity just went up 15%, right? So there's every year you potentially could grow in a significant amount of way with real estate. And uh, yeah, I mean, the stock portfolio, I think that's a, a key piece too. That was the way that my, my uh, in 2017, I kind of sat down and said, if I sold off all my real estate portfolio and just put it all in stocks, I could live just on a 4% dividend. So the 4% safe withdrawal rate was what I used as my backfall. I was like, okay, I'm definitely good. I can quit my job. Uh, but you can retire with a lot less than the four, a lot less money than the 4% rule dictates and be okay if you're willing to actively invest and manage your portfolio. Next question. Issue to attain 100% of income. Um, yeah, and, I, and I've met people too who occasionally uh, have taken on active flip, one active flip a year. William, you could do one flip a year. You could do, you know, pick up a part-time job. You could, there's lots of things you could do actively to supplement that income too, right? And not be chained to a desk. And that's a better alternative, I think, for a lot of people. Prapa says, hey Mike, how do banks look at student housing rental income? Will they use full rents to help you qualify for the next mortgage? Most of them will, but on that property, they don't like student, like most A-lender banks don't like student rentals, period. Um, they prefer to, they much, much prefer to, to rent to like a, a single family or a duplex that's rented to family or seniors or something to that effect. They don't like student rentals because they increase risk. Chance of them burning your house down, the chance of them partying and destroying the house. The bank's thinking they're super conservative. They're lending you at a really low interest rate. And their goal is if you default, they can sell the property for top dollar and acquire back all of their mortgage funds, right? Plus some for fees. So they're thinking a student rental property might be harder to sell. Might be hard to get the students to clean the property up. Might, be hard, might not be in as good of shape. So they just, history has dictated student rental properties, if not managed well, deteriorate much faster than family rentals They're not as taken care of. Um, that's just the nature of life. That's a fact. So will they use rental income? Yes. Will the lender require more down? Yes. 25 and 30% down typically in Canada for student rental properties. Um, so just be careful, you know, what, when you're trying to build your portfolio, what makes sense? It might make sense to rent it out. Even if the duplex would do well as a student rental, rent it to family because it'll look better to the lender, right? So that's something to think about when you're, trying to figure out your financing. Um, student rentals are not desirable to a lender. They do not want to give you low interest rates and lend against student rentals. There are a few banks who will do it. They tend to have a little rate premium attached to that mortgage product and tends to have a little bit higher down payment. But um, yeah, they will use that income. Uh, 
Okay, next one is, I'm moving fully to Canada in about one to two years. How do you think the housing market will be doing then? Uh, probably red hot, to be honest. Um, will there be a good time in the near future to start investing in rental properties? Well, with investing in anything that is solid and long-term, highly desirable, the best time to invest is yesterday. Um, <laughs> I, I think, honestly, I think any solid company out there that you're looking at, any real estate you know, property on the market, by and large, the best time to buy was, is today, is now. Um, I don't think it's right or smart to time the market on, real, real estate does this, right? There's some volatility, but it does this. Maybe there'll be years of flat, maybe there'll be years, some slight decline, but over a 10 year period, you will for sure lose. If you, like I have some of you message me and say, hey, I'm waiting five years to buy property when it all crashes. And I'm like, think that through. When would the government ever let real estate crash? They wouldn't, they won't. It's the number one driver of GDP in Canada. Uh, it is our strongest um, piece of the local economy. So think about it, like think of all the things that lawyers, accountants, realtors, uh, you know, contractors, all the people that supply the materials to build new houses, to repair the existing, all the tenants and people that rely on the real estate housing market. Just there's too much tied in to real estate success and the banks, which have all the money in Canada, right? That are driving our GDP. They're like a large percentage of the Toronto Stock Exchange. Guess where all their money is parked? In mortgages, in real estate. So do they wanna see a decline? No, they don't, right? It won't happen. Um, a major decline will not happen. More than 10%, the government steps in. So for those people waiting for the economy to crash more than 10%, it's not happening unless, well, you might as well just start buying options on like rioting and looting in the streets because that's that happens before the real estate market crashes, right? Like the world starts falling apart before real estate completely crashes. Now, I mean, like what we saw in the late 80s where there was, you know, a flat market down one, 2%, you know, five year, a five year period of no appreciation. Those things can happen. We could be flat for five years. There could be a pullback, but I don't think a major one is ever going to happen. Uh, what they would do is they, they basically print money to keep the price of real estate relatively flat. There could be a short-term fluctuation. Like during COVID, we saw 10, 20% discounts for some properties for a short period of time. There was a lot of people who chickened out and were afraid um, to, to buy. And so if you were bullish right during the worst of COVID, during the lockdown, there were some great deals on real estate. I saw duplexes here in London that could suffer you know, 30, 40% more right now. And if you were smart and ambitious during that time, you could capitalize on that fear. But that was for like a week or two. Uh, then the market you know, got smart again and went hard. Um, but I mean, there are always opportunities in real estate. There will always be that property that is worth 30% less that pops up in MLS. The agent's not smart. The buyer's not, the seller's not smart. And you can jump in and buy it. That'll be it all the time. Um, if the market cools a little bit, which I think it will in the next year or two, then you can be more, I guess, aggressive in your offer strategy. And then you could get some deals. So I think there are better times to buy than now, but, um, well, actually that's not true. Seasonally speaking, uh, there is almost no better time than to buy right now in November, December, and early January. Uh, December is historically 12% lower sale price than the spring every single year for the last 25 years. So every single year, the only time you should be buying is like November, December, but there are obviously anomalies, right? That's on average, right? Houses don't look as nice in the winter. People aren't as competitive around Christmas, et cetera, so forth, right? Um, so if you are looking to buy, buy in the winter when it's cold. Hey Mike.
How to get the best commercial rate loans. Everything I'm finding is 6.5% and 3,000 buy down to only 5.5% or is this pretty average? Philip, I don't know where you're looking, but I was talking to a credit union today and 3.5% for commercial uh, rates is pretty normal. Uh, depends on what commercial property you're trying to buy or you know if you're looking at to, to buy a business. When we bought um, our business in Toronto there, I think it was prime plus one, prime plus one and a half was what we qualified at. Now that was just a GSA on the business, right? So that was like business lending. And we weren't the most desirable business and we were kind of at bit of risk there, right? But um, with real estate, you know, like uh, imagine a 10 plex or a 12 plex or a 15 or 20 plex, you could get CMHC involved, right? And then you can get like a one and a half percent 10 year fixed rate, some dirty cheap interest rates for residential uh, commercial real estate. So it depends on what you're buying. Um, but in general, you should expect 25, 30% down. And you know, at most decent A lenders, you go through the commercial department and you'll see three, three and a half percent, four percent. Unless you're like your building is terrible or it's in the wrong market or your numbers are bad, then you might look to a, an alternative lender, and alternative lenders would be five, six, seven percent. So it just depends, you know, who you're having that conversation with. Go into your local banks and talk to their commercial departments and I suspect you can get a bit better rates than that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, doing commercial real estate transactions in general is more expensive. The appraisals are more money. The, you know, everything. There's application fees, et cetera, and so forth. It is more in general. Hey, Red Nemesis. Chicago says, any advice for a 15-year-old who wants to be a real estate investor? Start shadowing someone who's in the field now. Work for them for free for the next three years or even like on a, part-time basis, whatever, just to learn, just to soak up the knowledge. That's the most important thing you can possibly do. You can't invest in real estate until you're over 18, but um, from now until then, you could learn a ton. You could get involved in the field and be ready to go when you get a little older. And you're gonna need to get the capital at some point too, but um, the knowledge is really important. Alex says, Biden calling for $15 federal minimum wage. Inflation incoming. Yeah, geez. When they did that, so they did that here in Ontario. They raised our minimum wage from $10 to 14. It was a 40% increase in minimum wage. And you went into Subway and the $5 footlong became an $8 footlong. And uh, no jokes, you walked into the, like literally within a six month period, you went on Kijiji and Facebook and all the rental units were up 25%. So the best possible thing you can do when minimum wage is going to go up is invest in minimum wage rental properties, the one bedrooms, the two bedrooms, the three bedroom units, they're all gonna jump up in value. When you give people more money, they can afford to pay more for their housing. Um, so everything just rises, it doesn't fix any problem at all. Um, I guess it helps the people who are on fixed rent. Anyone who's already got an apartment on a fixed rent, they, there's rent controls in place and they can't raise rents. Those people, you know, they, they do a lot better. Um, but that is true, um, that will boost inflation a ton. The people who benefit from that are the people who have all the asset classes. I'm sure it doesn't hurt Biden or his companies at all to raise minimum wage. It probably helps everything. It really only hurts the people who are on fixed income. It really hurts the people who are who won't ride that inflation bubble. Caleb says, hey, Mike, thanks so much for your time doing this every week. Keep it going. This helps so many. Thank you, Caleb. Appreciate that. I try to just help as many as I can every week consistently. Some weeks I don't have great topics. Some weeks you guys guide the conversation, um, but I'm always here every week and uh, I appreciate the support of everyone who tunes in and all the people who are watching the replay. Smash the thumbs up button and I'll see you in the comments. William says, vaccines expected to widespread distribution by April. He's talking about the COVID-19. The vid. 
Texas is supposed to see first shipments in three weeks as per the press. That's wild. I think that's an amazing thing. Um, for those who are at risk, like I think 98% of the deaths here in Canada have been in long-term care facilities. So almost everyone who's died is elderly, high risk. Um, those, those facilities, they need a vaccine. They, those at risk need the vaccine. It's going to save things in a big way. And I'm actually really happy about it. It's going to bring a lot of stability to the economy. Um, so yeah, that'd be exciting. I got a 15 year fixed 2.375 on my personal. Is that decent? Yeah, it's not bad. In the U S I think rates are a little bit higher and the rates you fix in for are longer, right? A 15 year fixed is much different than in Canada. We, the most people do is a 10 year ever, but most common is a five year. Some people do the two year. We have a one year, a two year, a three year, a four year, a five year, and there's like a seven and a 10, but very few people do a 10 year fixed. So that, that rate is very good actually for a 10 year and a 15 year fixed. You have mentioned variable rate. Would you recommend going for a lower variable rate mortgage over a fixed mortgage during these uncertain times? JC, I think for my personal house, I went variable, but I would prefer to go fixed. For, my, for any property where I plan to sell in the next five years, I go variable because the breakout fees on a variable are only three months interest. But the fixed rate mortgages have huge breakout penalties. So if you go to sell a property and buy something else, or you want to go and refinance a property, say it's a burr and you go back to refinance it, don't do a fixed rate mortgage, do a variable mortgage. So that's the, the way I kind of decide it these days. But I think the difference between, or the differential between fixed and variable right now, um, fixed has a much better um, premium relative to the risk of rates going up. Does that make sense? Can you talk about tips and tricks to convince an A-lender to give you a mortgage for someone just starting out? Ace of Spades, I think the biggest thing is convincing them on, if you're young, convincing them on your efficacy, on your um, ability to succeed. So I used to write a cover letter for my initial mortgages when I was starting out. Even now, sometimes I will still write a cover letter saying, hey, here's where I've gone and here's what I've done. Um, a cover letter helps. I think it helps. So that's something you can do. You can present a cover letter, just like a little bio about yourself and your, you know, what you're all about and what you want to do. Just think from the lender's perspective, they don't want to see a flipper. They don't want to see, they want to see someone who's going to buy a property and hold it for a really long time. So that's what you want to present to the bank. Um, if that's the case of what you're trying to do. So yeah, think about that when you're going to the bank. Mike, curious if you make more money as a realtor or your rental properties. So Watts, I, uh, I don't make that much as a realtor, to be honest. Um, maybe I'll do an exposed video for you guys. I make, so meet Kevin's exposed video of him making like six million a year. That shocked me. I didn't expect him to make that much. He's doing very well, successfully. Um, I make, I don't wanna shoot myself in the foot and say what I make on, on the air, but maybe I'll do a video on it later. I make considerably more from other sources, not rental income. And I make six figures from rental income. So that's what I'll say. Um, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm doing, doing very well right now. I have lots of sources of income. And um, yeah, I mean, appreciation has been a big one. Just think about it. If you run the numbers on a portfolio of my size and you figure out that market's up 20, 25%, we're in the seven figures, well in the seven figures in that appreciation. So I've been having some seven figure, I mean, they're not realized gains, right? Cause I haven't sold, but in theory, seven figure years. Um, so yeah, being a realtor is very small source of my income sources, but I do make a little bit from that. It's honestly like barely enough to pay for an assistant 
to do some stuff. And I mostly use my realtor license to help out my buddies and, you know, close friends and investors and for my own personal properties and access to information. So I'm, I don't make a lot, right? When people, if you, if you wanted to buy a property in London, Ontario, like I'd recommend going with us, working with our brokerage, I'd hand you over to AJ and I'd probably do it f for like free. So he, I, I hand the leads away for the most part because I'm not interested in doing all the showings and stuff, but I'm, I'm somewhat involved and I enjoy watching people succeed, right? And so that's, that's a big piece of it. Yeah, but Watts, um, being a realtor is an active job, right? Unless you do it part-time, then it's not too bad. So I wasn't really looking for a full-time job myself. Came to say hi, hope you're doing well. Thank you, Kaylee. Next one is, what are some good options for small business acquisition financing for 1 million? How much down is required? What will be a good rate of interest over 10 years for SBA? Um, so, you know, when you're buying a small business, there are lots of ways to finance it. You could get creative with the vendor and do a vendor take back. And every business that I, I would ever get involved in, a vendor take back is required. That means the vendor should be providing some of the financing. They have the equity in the business. They should have some skin in the game. Whenever I'm buying any business, I want the owner to stay on for a period of time to transition. And I, even indefinitely, I want them to have a stake in it, something to lose if it doesn't transition well, right? So. That's important. I think a big piece of it should be a vendor financing. And the bank probably wants to see that too. They want to see that the you have some skin in the game and that the vendor who sold you the business has some skin in the game too. That increases everyone's level of comfort. Um, but yeah, you go to your local, local credit union, go to your local bank and have a conversation with some of the business advisors, TD, BMO, Scotia, you know, all the major credit unions, they all have a division that likes to lend to small business and they have an appetite for cash flow businesses. So if you're buying something that has cash flow, they're hungry for it. Um, they'll lend you like prime plus one, in some cases less. Um, so yeah, you can get financing fairly easily. There's a division like for small business versus medium business loans. And I've never been in the large business space, but there's also lots of brokers out there that deal in this space that have connections. We used to broker and it was, it was a fantastic experience. They referred us um, into Bank Channel and it was, it was great. Prepare to have, you need to have good projections, you need to have a good business case built on the business, a business plan built on the business, um, you know, a couple of years of financials, and they're gonna grill you, right? So you gotta know that business cold, you gotta have a good business sense. If you're going in there as someone who doesn't understand business and trying to buy a business, good luck, right? You gotta be able to speak the language. And so familiarize yourself with all of that before you go into that process. Xenocryption says, hey buddy, I'm back. And now I have a question. Is it a bit long? It's a bit of a long story. Do you have patience to hear it out? Um, maybe, I'm almost on the stream. I have like four minutes left. So if I see your question down below and I can answer it, I'll do my best. If not, jump in the comments after the stream and I try to respond to every single comment. And if I don't, go and comment on it again and bump me so I get a notification so I don't miss it. Which app or brokerage do you recommend in Canada for options calls? I bought PTLR stock early this month, but I want to do calls now. Um, I don't want to promote any one brokerage. I wish someone would give me a affiliate so I could just pump them. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll get into it. I'm going to do a video on some of the, some of the maybe interactive brokers, um, maybe quest trade, maybe I'll get into it. I'll, I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, not on this stream. I want to do a whole video on that. Midwest says, would you ever consider moving to the US for any reason? Um, no, I don't think so. I have no interest in living in the US full time. 
I do plan to spend four or five months a year in Arizona or Florida. I'm not sure yet, but one of those two states long-term, I'd like to spend some of my winters there, but logistically we haven't figured it out yet. Um, Alex says, I'm just scared. Same thing as in 1889 might happen. Apparently it took about 12 to 13 years for prices to come back to the same adjusted for inflation. That is true. Actually, that did happen in real estate. And it did take 12 or 13 years to come back if you adjust for inflation. Uh, prices were you know, relatively flat. There wasn't a huge drop. It, was, you know, it depends on which market you're looking at. Are you looking at London or Toronto? Uh, they all operated a little bit differently. And uh, they were in a different environment too. Let's think about that. But there was like, Interest rates back then were like, you'd walk into a bank, get a 17% mortgage. Like it was just a different time. And so real estate might've appreciated 20%, but inflation was 18. And so, you know, there's like a 2% difference. When you're doing private lending back in the eighties and nineties, you'd be getting 30, 40% interest. That was not uncommon. Um, and so it was, a, just, it was a different time. It was a different um, set of circumstances, I think, than what we see today. But yeah, I mean, theoretically we could see you know, relatively flat. Even then we didn't see like a huge crash, right? We saw years and years of flat and that's possible. Like we should plan for that. Um, thanks. Alexander says, hi Mike, love your videos. Thanks for all your help. Hey, no problem. Happy to help. Friendly white guy says, hey Mike, hey. Uh, Weibo said in London, realtors max out at around $200,000 a year. Yeah, I mean, one single realtor can't do much more than two, 250 a year. Um, with a team, you can do a lot more. Like if you had five or 10 agents under your team, your own brokerage, that kind of thing going, you could make significantly more. Um, I make less than six figures as a realtor because I'm not a hardcore realtor. I do it very, very part-time for investors that I wanna work with. Like I turn down a ton of clients. Um, I'm not looking to do it as a job. Like I don't grind it the way, like Weibo does it as a job. That's his thing, right? Um, for me, I'm a real estate investor. Not even a real estate investor, I'm an investor. I buy businesses, I buy stock. I invest in real estate as an asset class as well. I do lending. Um, but having the realtor you know, badge and access to all of that, it helps me. It helped me in buying businesses, it helped me going to the banks. So there's some advantage. It's added some value in my life. Um, thanks for the feedback though. Like button, just saying, exactly. Uh, friendly says, how long did it take to get the realtor license? Not long at all. It's pretty easy to get. I'll do, I could do a video on that specifically, probably. Dedra, hello, how are you? Xenocryption says, I live in an older home in Toronto and I got it 10 years ago. Good job, because every house in the last 10 years has done very well. It's a good location. It's on a deep ravine lot that has access to two streets. So my plan was to divide the lot to two pieces and sell one part to spend the money to build or, or renovate something nice in the other part. Fast forward 10 years and now I know the permit to divide the lot is not going to happen due to environmental committees. Oh, that sucks. Also a cash source I was counting on to spend on my project is not available anymore. I'm left with the house that is not worth renovating with a leaky basement and a small footprint. I'll be putting lipstick on a pig. That sucks. And I have to sell another builder now. My agent says it can pull 850, 250 of which I owe on a mortgage. Doesn't sound terrible. Probably double what you bought it for, right? The market's been really hot. If you were smart when you bought it, it's probably worth more than double what you bought it for in 10 years. Uh, initially I thought I might move into a condo or a townhouse and get some cash in the bank so I can pay for pre-construction, but then COVID hit and I'm not sure if that's the smart route to go. So I'm stuck right now, not knowing what to do at this point. Any advice you can give me? Um, hmm, tough. I think it depends on your personal preferences, right? Like 
as an example, I could propose to you, you selling that, paying off your mortgage, and having over $600,000 in cash, which you could load into various stocks or business that you love, and you could rent. And the rent to price ratios in downtown Toronto with COVID are favorable. You can rent a decent, nice condo for like under two grand a month if you look, know where to look for a deal, right? So especially with the winter and, and the second lockdown happening, it's a favorable time to rent. So you can get some rental arbitrage, meaning you could live in a condo in downtown Toronto for less than the cost if you owned it. It's cheaper to rent that condo than it is to own that condo. And so I would say, and tenants have all the rights in Toronto. So no one's gonna evict you. And once you live there, like good luck, right? It's yours basically. And you can lock in, like they can't raise the rent, like you can lock in, it's like they can barely even keep up to inflation these days. So it's not a good position to be in to own condos in downtown Toronto. Uh, I don't think you should buy a condo in downtown Toronto. That's just my thought. Maybe you rent a place and you buy a pre-construction condo um, where you can put a very small amount down. And I think in the next two years, inflation alone, just inflation, the amount of money they're printing, will boost, and the, the cost of lumber and the cost of construction materials will boost the cost of that condo for the next couple of years so that you can sell it before you even have to close on it. That's a good investment if you wanna invest in Toronto is the pre-construction stuff where you're two years out with a tiny deposit. So find those guys who are desperate enough to give a small tiny deposit and you can get that appreciation in the next couple of years on the full asset, call it an $800,000 condo, you might appreciate 10%, that's 80 grand. If you put $15,000 down and you make 80 grand on that, that's in a fantastic return with no carrying costs, just your deposit locked up. You can sell the contract, hire a realtor to sell the contract for you to someone else. So that's a great way to invest. If you wanna you know, get some, in, some investment in real estate and hold, it, hold on to, you know, the, what if the price of, like you're hedging basically against the prices of going crazy, right? Imagine the prices in Toronto go up 50%. You get that pre-construction condo for a $20,000 deposit or whatever. And if it goes up and real estate market goes up 50%, you have that, you have that price locked in. If it stays flat, you can sell it and get your deposit back. No harm, no foul. You rented a condo, you live cheap. So I think investing that money elsewhere is important. Don't hold on to the cash. That's the biggest thing is um, you don't want to have cash right now. You want to invest that. Alex, no problem. Happy to help. William says, thank you, Mike. Please have a good week and appreciate your thoughts. Hey, no problem. What options would you give a person who only has 5% down for a place but wants to house hack for a while before possibly expanding? Try rent hacking. Um, or you could just do the 5% down if the deal makes sense and stay in it for a while, then it could still make sense to do a 5% down deal. You have to look at the numbers. The interest rates right now associated to mortgages that have CMHC um, private mortgage insurance on it are ridiculously low. In fact, the fees you're paying for the 5% down um, private mortgage insurance are offset entirely by the interest rates right now. So it's just wild, just wild. Uh, saw an old video of yours where you had an Excel spreadsheet to download and analyze a potential rental property, but the link is broken. Could you put it up somewhere else? Yeah, I wanna go do that. Buy it, like, I let the website expire, but I should go buy a domain and set it up and you know download it and put it up there again. People have asked me for it. I thought about even selling the spreadsheet. Like People have offered me like 25 bucks just to email it to them. And I'm just so lazy to go find it and update it and then make it into something that I can send out for, for money, right? Um, it's on my to-do list to get that spreadsheet updated. And maybe I'll make like an ebook and give it away with the ebook, like how to buy around a property, you know, add some tools like that, and then give it away as a small package. Uh, and then just donate all the money that I get to charity. That's been something that I've been big on. I'm speaking on November 30th at, uh, at the Rise networking event and, um, all the money we're raising, we're over a thousand dollars raised so far. I'm just gonna donate all the Boys and Girls Club London 
um, charity. They helped me a lot when I was a kid. Um, not London specific chapter, but um, the Sarnia chapter. But I like the organization a lot. And like 90 cents on the dollar goes towards helping local kids rise up. So I'm a big fan of giving back. And um, I need to be careful how I spend my time these days. And I spend not enough on YouTube, to be honest. So. Okay. Um, thanks for taking time. Hey, no problem. Happy to help. Happy to help. How do you find good contractors to rehab your home? Um, trial and error or referral? And even referral, you got to be careful. Sometimes contractors are good for a while and then not so good. Mike, is there a way I can reach out to you offline to have a chat or perhaps consult? I occasionally do coaching calls. Reach out to me on Instagram at Mike Rosehart if you want to have a chat. And I do do coaching calls occasionally. So if I can fit you in, I'll, I'll do a you know paid coaching call. And I do donate a large percentage of um, what I earn from those sources back to charity. I just, I give it back. If I make 150 bucks from a 30 minute coaching call or something to that effect, oftentimes I'll be walking by, just give money to a homeless guy or donate to charity. Um, I'm not really looking to, to monetize this in any way, but people don't appreciate what they don't pay for. I've learned that the hard way. Um, so that's something that just, I instituted because if you don't, people won't show up for the call. They don't take it seriously. They don't take any action. So they gotta, they gotta pay in order to take it seriously. I actually managed to recreate that one tab. <laughs> I don't know what the heck you meant by true ROI. True ROI, I think, meant, and by the way, total props. I'd love it if you sent me that, Alex, just so I could see what you recreated. That'd be kind of cool. I post that on Instagram um, in my stories. But uh, true ROI, I think, I'd have to look at the spreadsheet again, probably means like total ROI, right? So I'm probably looking at... Um, appreciation, mortgage pay down, and cash flow, right? So my initial one is looking at like cap rates and cash flow, but the true ROI probably factors in uh, a standard, you know, appreciation into the into the return on the down payment. Pro tip. All right, guys. Look forward to talking to you guys in the future and I'll see you all in the next stream. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Hit the like button and I'll see you in the comments and on Instagram at Mike Rosart. Remember the secret unlocking a wealthier you three levers in your financial control spend less earn more and maximize returns on the difference bye everyone see you next week and see you in the comments and on instagram